This BYU Campus Education Week address by Brent L. Topp was given on August 18, 2008. Brothers and sisters, I welcome you to Campus Education Week. My name is Brent L. Topp, and I've been asked to speak to you today. And I consider it a great privilege and pray that what I have to share with you today will be both instructional and inspirational, that it will not only provide you with help, but most important, that it will provide you with hope. I've entitled my presentation, Look Up, Reach Out, Hold On. Let me tell you where that phrase comes from. When I was a young Boy Scout in Idaho Falls, Idaho, many, many years ago, go. Uh, in fact, shortly after the fall of Adam, I worked hard to receive the swimming and life-saving merit badges in Scouts. Now, I must admit that I can't remember all that I learned way back then, and I certainly can't swim as well or as far as I did when I was young. But I remember that phrase being taught in the context of what to do if you are struggling and seeking and need the help of a, of a rescuer. You look up, in other words, you don't panic, stay calm, and look up to that person who is literally your lifeline. Reach out to that lifeline and securely take hold of it. Finally, when you have looked up, reached out, and grabbed on to that helping hand, hold on for dear life. Now tonight I'm not here to talk to you about swimming and life-saving skills, or you'd surely drown. But I have come here to tell you about a spiritual application to that important phrase. There is a story from the life of the Savior that I have read many times and have taught it to hundreds and hundreds of New Testament students through the years. Yet I didn't fully understand it until I experienced it firsthand. It is the familiar story of Jesus walking on water. Now, no, I didn't walk on water but I did feel something akin to what Peter experienced. In Matthew chapter 14, we read, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. For me personally, stepping out of the boat was when I was called to serve as a mission president. I had served in many different callings and in leadership positions in the church, but this was in many ways much different and far more difficult. Someone once told me that being a mission president is like being dropped out of an airplane onto the roof of a speeding bullet train filled with passengers. You have to run along the top of the train, make your way to the controls, take over as engineer, guide the out-of-control train safely into the station. I started to sense a little what would be involved in the assignment when I was set apart by President Boyd K. Packer. 
I was so nervous and so overwhelmed by the responsibilities that I don't remember all that he said in my blessing. But there is one statement, however, that I will never forget. He said, I bless you that you will not panic when you have reason to panic. <laughs> now that is a great blessing, but it's a little disconcerting at the same time. Several months and many, many problems and challenges into our mission, I felt like I was sinking. Words cannot fully describe the sense of inadequacy that enveloped me. I wasn't sure I would survive three years. In fact, as another mission president in our area said, this job could kill you. <laughs> in retrospect, I can now see that the Lord was trying to teach me a valuable lesson. But before he could teach me, he had to get my attention, really get my attention so that I would truly listen and learn from him. Often God gets our full attention when he strips away our security blankets, whatever they may be, and exposes our weaknesses, insecurities, and inadequacies in such a way as to literally force us to our knees. I am convinced that each of us, if we are faithful and earnestly strive to be true disciples, will be forced to our knees at some time in our lives, perhaps many times. For me, recently, it was being a mission president. For others, it may be a serious health problem, a broken marriage, a prodigal child, the loss of a loved one, or any number of life's great traumas. Yet it may not be any one big trauma at all but the cumulative effects of the day-by-day -day battering and bruising that we all experience in mortality. All of us, at some time or another, will feel like we are sinking, whether emotionally, spiritually, or physically. We, like Peter, will cry out, Lord, save me. As painful as those times may be, they may be among the most significant learning periods of our lives, and the most powerful evidences of the Lord's grace and tender mercies. Let me illustrate what I mean by that by returning what, to what might be characterized as the rest of the story of Jesus and Peter walking on water. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. We all too often emphasize Peter's failure and the master's rebuke, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? To me, this story is not one of failure or a lack of faith, but one of extraordinary triumph. The focus should not be on Peter's sinking, but rather on Christ's lifting. I believe that Jesus caught hold of Peter by the hand and lifted him back to the surface of the lake like a father would lift a child who has fallen down. To me, the miracle is not so much that Peter took a step or two on the water, but rather after he took hold of the Savior's outstretched rescuing hand, he walked back to the boat with the Savior. Not only did Christ walk on water, but he also enabled Peter to do the same. Now, do you see the message in this miracle? 
When you try to walk on water yourself, you will always sink. But when you take hold of the Savior's outstretched hand of grace and walk with him, you cannot fail. Christ's grace not only rescues us and lifts us, it empowers us. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve taught, The enabling power of the atonement of Christ strengthens us to do things we could never do on our own. When we accept his grace by taking hold of his outstretched hand, he will lift us, walk with us, and empower us beyond our own natural abilities. I have learned that taking hold of his hand and allowing him to lift us doesn't just automatically or quickly happen. It is a spiritual skill that has to be learned, relearned, and constantly applied. Tonight, may I suggest to you five things that have personally blessed my life in those moments when I felt like I was drowning. These are practical things that can be done each day to help develop that spiritual skill of accepting Christ's grace in our lives. They are, one, think on him, two, thank him, three, serve him, four, learn of him, and five, trust in him. First, Think on him. In Doctrine and Covenants section 6, verse 36, the Lord commanded Oliver Cowdery to look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Now that charge is as vital to us today, today as it was to Oliver Cowdery in 1829. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like we are falling apart at the seams, we need to focus on Christ. We cannot afford to look beyond the mark or be distracted when we desperately need to see the Savior's saving hand of grace that can lift us all up. We need all the focus on him that we can muster to take hold of his hand and walk with him. When we focus on him, we can't focus on things that threaten to dra drag us down and drown us. President Goyd Boyd K. Packer has taught, Did you know that you can only think of one thing at a time? Did you know that every time you think a good thought, there is no room for a bad one? It is important that we know this because we can give priority to significant and important thoughts. One of the most significant ways in which I can think on him is through music. Now, I am no musician. I can't carry a tune in a bucket or a backhoe. But I love music, particularly sacred hymns of praise and the anthems of the Restoration. They provide me with a means whereby my mind can focus on the Savior. They seem to calm the storms that may rage from time to time in our lives. In the preface of our current hymn book, the First Presidency declared, Some of the greatest sermons are preached by singing hymns. Hymns move us to repentance and good works, build testimony in faith and comfort the weary, console the mourning, and inspire us to endure to the end. Who wouldn't want to receive any of those promised blessings? Greater faith and testimony, comfort when weary, consolation when sorrowful, inspiration and motivation when we feel like we are spiritually sinking. 
or running on empty. No wonder President Packer urged us to choose from among the sacred music of the church one favorite hymn and to memorize the words and music and think through that hymn in times of need. He promised that, quote, it will change the whole mood on the stage on your mind. I bear testimony that sacred music is one of the most powerful means whereby we can look up to the Savior, focus on his rescuing hand. And I have learned from my own sinking experiences that greater solace and strength to face those challenges come when I listen to, sing a hymn, or, and ponder on the words. Now, asking me to name my favorite hymn is like asking me to identify my favorite scripture or to select a favorite grandchild. There are so many different hymns that at different times when I had particular needs that quieted my fears and have given me courage. I love the Lord is my light and Jesus the very thought of thee. I get courage from come, come ye saints and peace from abide with me. I particularly love these words. Where can I turn for peace? Where is my solace? When other sources cease to make me whole, when with a wounded heart, anger or malice, I draw myself apart, searching my soul. Where when my aching grows, where when I languish, where in my need to know, where can I run? Where is the quiet hand to calm my anguish? Who, who can understand? He, only one. Now I could go on. I have so many favorite hymns, and I'm sure you do too. Hymns, whether they are sung beautifully in the choir, loudly in the shower, or silently reviewed in our heads, can give us guidance, hope, and strength. Some rally us to greater courage and motivate us to do more than we may feel we have strength to do. Another important way in which we can think on him is through the sacrament. It can be a spiritual oasis, a refuge from the storms of life, if we let it. I know when I have been struggling with feelings of self-doubt or inadequacy or weighed down with problems and heavy responsibilities, those quiet moments of reverent reflection have renewed my strength and determination. Those minutes during the administration of the sacrament are my sacred space that bring me back to and focuses my mind on what and who matters most in my life. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has given us some suggestions as to what we can remember and think about as we think on him during the sacrament. He said, we could remember Christ's miracles and his teachings, his healings and his help. We could remember that he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and motion to the lame and the maimed and the withered. Then on those days when we feel our progress is halted or our joys and views have grown dim, we can press forward steadfastly in Christ with unshaken faith in him and a perfect brightness of hope. Elder Holland goes on to say, when those difficult times come to us, we can remember that Jesus has descended below all things before he could ascend above them, and that he suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he might be filled with mercy and know how to succor his people in their infirmities. 
That leads me to my second way whereby we can take hold of the Lord's rescuing hand of grace, and that is thank him. I have learned sometimes the hard way, and that is that it's pretty hard, if not totally impossible, to say, woe is me, at the same time you are saying, how blessed I am. It's pretty hard to say, I can't do this, when you recognize all the ways the Lord has lifted you and carried you in times past and helped you get through worse things. In Alma chapter 34 in the Book of Mormon, the prophet Amulek admonishes us, Live in thanksgiving daily for the many mercies and blessings he doth bestow upon you. President Joseph F. Smith said, The grateful man sees so much in the world to be thankful for, and with him the good outweighs the evil. Love overpowers jealousy, and light drives darkness out of his life. I bear testimony of the truthfulness of that principle. I have observed it in the lives of others and experienced it in my own. Not many months before my father passed away, I had the privilege of learning from him one of the most important lessons of my life, a lesson that would help me through some difficult and trying times of my own. My mother had died unexpectedly about a year earlier. Now, quite understandably, it was difficult for my dad to be alone. He and mom had been married for 61 years. I worried about how my dad would fare on his own. I had never seen my father's homemaking skills in action, and I don't think he knew how to boil water. So I was concerned about whether he would have enough to eat. One day as I was visiting with him, Dad asked me to drive him to some of the favorite places of his childhood and early years. As we drove and we talked and reminisced, now trying to be the dutiful, responsible son and feeling some sense of my responsibility to care for him, I continued to probe how he was really doing in his life. I would ask, do you have enough money for all your needs? He then proceeded to list to me all of his contributions to the church and other charity organizations. I would say, you are paying way too much fast offering. And then I would scold him, you don't have to pay tithing on that income. You've already paid tithing on that. Now, I thought I was sounding very, very profound and that I was teaching him something but I was humbled by his words back, words that both rebuked me and instructed me. Dad simply said, I know I don't have to do all this, but I want to. Then with quivering lips and tears rolling down his cheeks and a voice cracking with emotion, he said, I want to do this. I can afford it. It is the least I can do because God has been so good to me. The concerns I had previously expressed to my dad in my attempt to protect him seemed awfully shallow and unimportant at that moment. Because God has been so good to me, what a simple and profound declaration. There was nothing more that needed to be said. In silence, we drove for several more minutes with tears streaming down our faces. His words echoed in my ears and pierced my soul because God has been so good to me. As I looked at my father, I saw an elderly man with wrinkles and white hair, most of which I probably caused. I saw a man who had faced his share of problems and pressures, a man who had known loss and disappointment, 
who had carried his share of grief and loneliness. I saw a man, though he didn't say much about it, must have been in considerable pain and discomfort, as unbeknownst to any of us, cancer at that very moment was ravaging his body. Yet despite all this and more, his focus was not on himself or his woes, but on his blessings. I was so proud of him and I was inspired by him. And I wanted to be like him because God has been so good to me. That is how I wanted to live my life. At the moment my father said those words, I was inspired, but I could not have known what a power they would later become in my life. A few years later, they would become a literal lifeline. When I was in the dark hole of depression and feeling so overwhelmed with life, I learned that one of the most important ways to focus on Christ is to focus on the multitude of tender mercies he extends to us in our lives. Now, it takes real effort to count your many blessings when the natural man wants to wallow in self-pity and focus on his pain and problems. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to look at life as a glass half full instead of as a glass half empty when we are discouraged and depressed, beset with hardships and heartaches? It takes effort, spiritual and emotional effort. It takes faith to think about and really believe and live in such a way that bespeaks because God has been so good to me. One of the most important lessons I have learned through personal experience is that gratitude is an antidote to selfishness. Counting blessings puts problems and pains in perspective. We frequently sing the hymn in church, Count Your Many Blessings. As we sing, do we ponder the word's meanings? Do we really believe them and trust in the promises? When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. Counting our blessings, naming them one by one, is like a large picture window that allows us to view the landscape of God's goodness to us. Gratitude increases our faith in Christ because we recognize his tender mercies in our lives. A thankful heart increases spiritual strength, strength to endure hardships and heartache, strength to resist temptation, strength to face difficult tasks and seemingly overwhelming responsibilities. In contrast, ingratitude is like a mirror that reflects back to us our problems, our weaknesses and worries. In fact, it is like one of those mirrors found in amusement parks or carnivals that distort reality. Failure to see the hand of God in our lives in true perspective actually leaves us with a warped view of our real circumstances and our true selves. So what can we do to increase our gratitude and live in thanksgiving daily as Amulek taught? Two things have been particularly helpful to me. The first is what I call a count your blessing jour journal. You remember that recently President Henry B. Eyring spoke of the value of this practice for him and his family. 
A Count Your Blessings journal doesn't have to be fancy or leather-bound. It can be an index card or a post-it note or a scrap of paper or anything which I can jot something down when I glimpse the goodness of God in my life. Writing down those blessings and periodically reviewing them encourages and inspires. Not only have I been blessed by such a practice, but I saw how many of our missionaries were changed by it when they were particularly discouraged if they would literally count their blessings and record the small, small miracles that surround them and review what they had written, their attitudes improved and their faith and dedication increased. It really works. A second way to count your blessings is to periodically offer a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer with no requests, no petitions, no pleadings, just expressions of gratitude. Each of us has so many things for which we could ask the Lord's blessings and guidance, but great spiritual perspective and strength can come from prayers that give thanks for simple things, things that we don't often remember to thank Him for in our prayers, such as indoor plumbing, hot water, air conditioning, a warm home on a brutally cold winter's night, good food, clean water, good friends, ears to hear the laughter of grandchildren and good music, eyes to read good books and to see majestic mountains, a nose to smell fresh baked bread. When I have done this, I quickly realize that I have far more reasons to say I thank thee than I ask thee. That leads me now to the third way in which we take the hand of the Savior and let him lift us when we feel like we are sinking, and that is serve him. This is a natural outgrowth of gratitude. It is truly as the hymn declares, thanks indeed. Because I have been given much, I too must give. Because of thy great bounty, Lord, each day I live. I shall divide my gifts from thee with every brother that I see who has the need of help from me. Because I have been sheltered, fed by thy good care, I cannot see another's lack and I not share. My glowing fire, my loaf of bread, my roof safe shelter overhead, that he too may be comforted. Because I have been blessed by thy great love, dear Lord, I'll share thy love again according to thy word. I shall give love to those in need. I'll show that love by word and deed. And then this last phrase, thus shall my thanks be thanks indeed. Usually when we feel like we are emotionally or spiritually sinking and that we need a rescuing hand, the last thing on earth we feel like doing is service. When we are down, it is hard to get up for service because the natural man views it just as another item on an overwhelming list of gotta do's. In reality, serving our fellow men, especially when we feel least like doing so, is vital means whereby we are saved from our own selfishness, our self-centeredness and our distorted fixation on our own problems and inadequacies. I have learned that when I serve others, when I do as the scriptures say, succor the weak, lift up the hands that hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees, 
It is my hands that are lifted up and my knees that are strengthened. President Spencer W. Kimball taught, when we are engaged in the service of our fellow men, not only do our deeds assist them, but we put our own problems in fresher perspective. When we concern ourselves more with others, there is less time to be concerned with ourselves. In the midst of the miracle of serving, there is the promise of Jesus that by losing ourselves, we find ourselves. I saw this principle in action every day as I worked with our full-time missionaries. One of the most important responsibilities facing any mission president is to strengthen the spirituality of the missionaries. And I found that there can be no spirituality without service. Full-time missionaries are instructed to follow the Savior's example of going about doing good in both planned and unplanned service. I encourage them not to let a day go by without doing random acts of kindness. As they did so, their spirituality increased. They experienced less discouragement, and they became more effective in their finding and teaching efforts. President Gordon B. Hinckley said, Why are missionaries happy? Because they lose themselves in the service of others. The best antidote I know for worry is work. The best medicine for despair is service. The best cure for weariness is the challenge of helping someone who is even more tired. The new missionary guide, Preach My Gospel, teaches the missionaries to recognize opportunities for small, simple acts of kindness that you can offer to God's children and to pray and be aware of opportunities throughout each day to do good. I have come to learn that that counsel isn't just for full-time missionaries, but for all of us. We all need the spiritual uplift that accompanies service. Individual circumstances may not allow you to do everything that you would like to do, but you can do something to serve others every day. Now, I'm not talking about service projects or just fulfilling our callings and our daily responsibilities, though they are indeed service too. What I am suggesting is that we look for what I like to call private ministry. Those random and sometimes not so random acts of kindness that aren't part of any job description or church stewardship. There are numerous examples of busy church leaders who have enormous public ministry responsibilities but perform private service as part of their private ministry. President Thomas S. Monson is a great example of that. The private ministry will rarely be recognized by the media or the millions of church members, but it blesses the one and yields eternal rewards. Now let me share with you a personal experience that illustrates the power of private ministry service. When our family lived in Israel, President James E. Faust and his beloved wife Ruth came on assignment to the BYU Jerusalem Center. They were accompanied by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland and his wife Patricia. Their visit included speaking at a district conference, a fireside for the students, a reception for prominent and influential people from Israel, and a myriad of meetings. It was all part of their official assignment, their public ministry. But it was the private ministry, however, that our family will never forget. Unbeknownst to me, our nine-year-old daughter, Janie, asked her mother to help her bake cookies. 
and then she secretly delivered them to the Fausts and Holland's apartment. Each plate of cookies held a note written in her crooked nine-year-old penmanship that read, From the Cookie Monster. <laughs> Janie placed the surprise in front of each of the apartment doors, rang the bell, and ran away. She wanted her gift to be of service to be anonymous. Later that evening, as we were watching a movie and eating popcorn, a knock came on our apartment door. I yelled out, come on in, thinking it was one of some of our students coming to join us. In walked President and Sister Faust and Elder and Sister Holland. We were shocked and a little embarrassed since we were all in our pajamas and our mouths were full of popcorn. President Faust announced, I just came to see the cookie monster. It took us a minute to figure out what he was talking about. At first, President Faust, in his gracious way, didn't want to awaken Janie, who had already gone to bed. But this was something I didn't want her to miss, a personal visit from two apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were hugs and expressions of love and an appreciation for a sleepy nine-year-old. No doubt it had been a long, busy, exhausting day for these apostles, but they still sought out a little girl to thank and to love. That simple act of private service, private ministry, meant more to our daughter than almost anything they have said or done in their public ministry. Each of us can likewise have a private ministry, regardless of our circumstances or our callings. In fact, I believe that kind of ministry, the random acts of kindness, of going about doing good is just as important, if not more so, than the more visible things we do in our official callings. Every giver of service, no matter how small or how large the giving may be, if given in love and real intent, will be rewarded by him whose supreme service saves us all. We will be emotionally enlarged, spiritually strengthened, and lifted from our sinking, whatever it is that threatens to drown us, as we reach out and lift others. Number four, learn of him. In one of the most important passages in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us about a specific kind of learning and what that learning will yield in our lives. You remember that Jesus declared... Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye will find rest unto your souls. This passage has particular relevance to me. I know from personal experience that the words labor and heavy laden have emotional and spiritual dimensions just as much as physical. Surely those who struggle with anxiety and depression labor in a very real way. Those who carry emotional burdens like perfectionism, discouragement, or self-contempt are truly heavy laden. The Savior's invitation is especially applicable to them, for without his promise of rest unto your souls, it would be easy to give up and give in to despair. Jesus declared, learn of me. He didn't say, take a physics class. No offense intended to physicists or those who like physics. 
Continuing education, whether it be physics or family history, geology or geometry, has its place and will bless our lives in many, many ways. There is no doubt about that. And your presence here today at Education Week is evidence of that. The Lord has indeed commanded us to learn as much as we can about all that we can. But what Jesus is specifically talking about is that kind of knowledge that not only increases the intellect, but also heals the heart, soothes the soul, strengthens the spirit, and expands the character. All of which in turn fill what President Gordon B. Hinckley called our reservoirs of capacity. The word disciple literally means a learner or pupil. Jesus is the master teacher and we are his students. If we are to be his disciples in the truest sense of that word, we must sit at his feet, figuratively speaking, and learn of him. We must learn those things that he would have us know so that we can do the things that he would have us do, and most important, so that we can become what he would have us become. May I suggest a couple of things that help us to learn of him in ways that affect the heart even more than the head. As Nephi taught in the Book of Mormon, one of the most significant ways to sit at the feet of the Savior is through feasting upon the words of Christ. This is particularly true for those who feel that they are sinking. As the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon taught, the pleasing word of God healeth the wounded soul. As a religious educator, I study the scriptures for a living. My career has allowed me the time and resources to study in depth all of the standard works of the church. I have been able to teach all of the scripture courses and other courses in Latter-day Saint theology and history. My professional passion has been for the scriptures. And I feel as Nephi of old, my soul delighteth in the scriptures and my heart pondereth them continually. It is a wonderful career, but there are occupational hazards, however. I'm not talking about the risks of paper cuts from turning pages, but let me explain. Most of my scripture study efforts through the years has been directed to developing study guides and lectures for my classes, researching for writing projects and preparing lots of talks. I have found, however, that searching the scriptures in preparation for a talk or a lesson is not the same as feasting upon the words of Christ for personal growth and spirituality. I need to learn of him, not just learn about him. I need to feel him deep within my soul, not just know chapter and verse. Sometimes my personal scripture study could be characterized as getting through the scriptures as opposed to getting the scriptures through to me. I often hear people complain about studying the scriptures with phrases like, I don't read well or I don't get anything out of my study. Even some of our full-time missionaries who have two hours set aside each day for study made such comments and viewed scripture study as a chore. As I tried to teach them, feasting upon the words of Christ isn't so much about reading comprehension as it is about feeling the power of the word. President Ezra Taft Benson taught, it is not just that the Book of Mormon teaches us truth, Though indeed it does that, it is not just that the Book of Mormon bears testimony of Christ, though indeed it does that too. 
But there is something more. There is a power in the book which will begin to flow into your lives the moment you begin a serious study of the book. Even when we don't understand everything we read, we are still being infused with spiritual strength and power. Faithful study of the scriptures, especially when we may feel down in the dumps, enhances our spiritual sensitivities. Feeling is sometimes more important than understanding. We all need to read, study, and apply the scriptures more. But perhaps what we need the most when we feel like we are emotionally and spiritually sinking is to feel the scriptures. One of the best ways to do that is through meditation. Thinking and feeling deeply is a way whereby we learn of him and it is as vital to our emotional and spiritual well-being as proper nutrition and exercise are to our physical health. President Gordon B. Hinckley declared, We need the Spirit of the Lord in our lives. We live in a very mad world. And when all is said and done, the pressures are tremendous. We fly at high speeds. We drive at high speeds. We program ourselves. There is hardly time to reflect and think and pause and meditate. We need to, President Hinckley said. He said, I recall so vividly President McKay in his old age in a meeting with his counselors in the 12 saying, Brethren, we need to meditate more. We're so busy doing little things, we need to med meditate more. In much the same way as feeling the scriptures and meditating upon the things of God teaches and lifts us, temple worship also helps us to learn of him. In the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, the prophet Joseph Smith prayed that all those who entered the temple, quote, may feel God's power and feel constrained to acknowledge that it is God's house, a place of his holiness. The temple is a house of learning, but it is also a house of feeling. Feeling God's presence, feeling peace, feeling the Savior's love. The temple is also a house of seeing, seeing things in proper context with an eternal perspective. This kind of learning is vital when we feel overwhelmed, when we are sinking and wonder how much longer we can keep our heads above water. Elder John A. Widsoe taught that in the temple, I see more clearly my place amidst the things of the universe, my place among the purposes of God. I am better able to place myself where I belong and I am better able to value and to weigh and separate and organize the common ordinary duties of my life so that the little things shall not oppress me or take away my vision of the greater things God has given me. I love that phrase, so that the little things shall not oppress me or take away my vision of the greater things God has given me. That phrase became particularly meaningful to me as I served as a mission president. The intense, non-stop nature of the assignment wore on me. At, at times I felt like I was strapped to a carousel pony on a high-speed merry-go-round with no way to get off. There was always somewhere to go, someone to see, something that must, must need to be done. I was always on call. My cell phone seemed like it was an actual anatomical appendage. 
there was no escape at least for three years. Now, I may be overstating it a tad, but I want you to understand why the temple became such a vital venue of refuge and refreshment, spiritually and emotionally and physically. While I was in the temple, there was no phone, no interviews, no meetings, no problems, at least no problems that I could do anything about for a few hours. I cannot overstate how much the temple came to be a place of peace, a place of revelation, a place of rest and rejuvenation, a place of learning of and listening to him. As the Lord himself declared, learn of me and listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. Lastly, we take the rescuing hand of the Savior and allow him to lift us by trusting in him. We are all familiar with that passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which read, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, of course, we say that we believe it, but do you really believe it? From personal experience, I know that it is easier to quote that passage than to live it. That phrase, with all thine heart, implies a total trust, a complete surrender to his will, which is difficult for the natural man. I know it sure is for me, and I think that is why the Lord sometimes strips away my security blankets so that I, will cling, that I cling to, so that I will look up, reach out, and hold on to him. It is interesting to me that one of the footnotes for that passage in Proverbs that we just read states, walking with God. I recently gained a greater appreciation for what it means to trust in the Lord and to walk with him. I have a toddler grandson named Elijah who is scared to death of the vacuum cleaner. Not only does he freak out if someone is vacuuming in the room, but he also recoils in terror if he even sees the inanimate monster silently standing in the corner or a closet. It's rather funny, but, it, funny, but it's also inspiring to see how Eli's fear fades and courage increases when he is holding my hand. And if I hold him in my arms, he will even help me vacuum. On his own, he is fearful. But with me, he is brave. In a similar manner, Eli doesn't do stairs well. His parents have rightfully instilled in him a little fear about going up or down stairs on his own. But when I take him with, by the hand, he has no fear of stairs because he knows that Grandpa won't let him fall. He has unconditional trust in me. He knows that I love him so much that I won't let go of him. As I've watched Eli, I have discovered that I'm a lot like him. No, I'm not afraid of the vacuum cleaner, though my wife may think I am. I am like my grandson in that I have monsters that cause me a degree of fear and trepidation. They are not, not tangible things, but they are just as real and debilitating to me as the vacuum cleaner is to Eli. They are emotional monsters, like worrying so much about what others think lack of self-confidence, perfectionism and its ever-present sibling, self-disappointment, self-deprecation, and discouragement. Perhaps you have similar monsters that you likewise fear. 
I have come to realize that most of our fears and insecurities are as irrational as my grandson's vacuum cleaner phobia, uh, phobia and his uneasiness with, st with stairs. As a grandfather, I delight in helping Elijah overcome his fears. There is indescribable joy in having him take my hand to help him down the stairs, knowing that he trusts me so much. I love to hold him and comfort him when he is afraid, and I am convinced that the Lord feels the same way about us. He delights in helping us. He loves to hold us and calm our fears. He is pleased when we take his hand. He wants us to trust him completely. Yet all too often, I, like an unsteady toddler, cower and cry at the top of the stairs, unwilling to take his hand and accept his help, unwilling to lay down my pride, my pseudo-self-reliance, and rely wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland poignantly observed, I am convinced that none of us appreciate how deeply it wounds the loving heart of the Savior of the world when he finds that his people do not feel confident in his care or secure in his hands. Unfortunately, it is all too common for us when we are down in the dumps, when we feel that we have neither the strength or the will to go on, when we feel helpless and hopeless to dismiss God's power to save us, at least to save us at that moment. We may not say it out loud, but we may think, yes, Christ has power to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he can't or he won't raise me from my difficulties. Faith in him and being willing to accept the saving power that he extends to us is what is really needed at that moment. We can trust his power and his promises because as he himself declared, who am I, saith the Lord, that have promised and not fulfilled? He does not lie. He does not go back on his word. We must never lose sight of God's promises in our times of trial. President George Q. Cannon testified, No matter how serious the trial, how deep the distress, how great the affliction, he will never desert us. He never has and he never will. He cannot do it. It is not his character to do so. He is an unchangeable being, the same yesterday, the same today, and he will be the same throughout the eternal ages to come. We have found that God. We have made him our friend by obeying his gospel, and he will stand by us. We may pass through the fiery furnace. We may pass through deep waters, but we shall not be consumed or overwhelmed. We shall emerge from all these trials and difficulties the better and purer for them if we will only trust in our God and keep his commandments. In the lectures on faith, the prophet Joseph Smith taught that without a correct idea concerning God's nature and attributes, he said, quote, the faith of every rational being must be imperfect and unproductive. Without abiding trust in God's perfect attributes, men could not have confidence sufficient to place themselves under his guidance and direction. One of the attributes of God in which we can have absolute, complete confidence is his perfect love for us. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that without this one characteristic to influence all the other excellencies of his character, they could not have such powerful dominion over the minds of men. 
But when the idea that God is love, who cannot see the just ground that men of every nation, kindred, and tongue have to exercise faith in God so as to obtain eternal life? Through personal challenges in my own life, I have come to see more clearly that through the love of the Christ, each of us can be as Amulek taught concerning the grace of the Lord, encircled in the arms of safety. No matter what our challenges or weaknesses, if we trust in his love, we will trust in his power to lift and to save, and we will trust in his promises to us. If we look up reach out and hold on to his perfect love, we can face with faith any challenge and surmount any difficulty because his love, his mercy, his enabling grace, his strength to lift and his power to save will never fail us. Though we may fail and falter at times, he will not. The Savior's arms of mercy are extended to us all we can take his hand and walk with him by striving each day to be more to more fully think on him thank him serve him trust in him i add my testimony to that of elder jeffrey r holland however halting our steps are toward him though they shouldn't be halting at all his stop his steps are never halting toward us May we have enough faith to accept the goodness of God and the mercy of his only begotten Son. May we come unto him and his gospel and be healed, and may we do more to heal others in the process. When the storms of life make this difficult, may we still follow his bidding to come, keeping our eye fixed on him forever and single to his glory, in doing so, we too will walk triumphantly over the swelling waves of life's difficulties and remain unterrified amid any rising winds of despair. I bear my personal testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ and of his strengthening hand, the peace-giving, confidence-building, love-infusing, joy-filling power of his atoning sacrifice for us. May you learn to let him heal you, lift you, carry you, and strengthen you. May you take hold of his outstretched hand, not only when you feel like you are sinking, but always. And may you never, ever let go. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This BYU Campus Education Week address by Brent L. Topp was given on August 18, 2008. 